6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, Revelation Part 2. Well, we are in Hour 23 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours in which we will attempt to go from Revelation chapter 4 to the end of the book, chapter 22. You may recall that Revelation is one of the unique books that gives you the outline of the book. In verse 19 of chapter 1, John is told to write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta, hereafter, or after these things. It's past, present, and future tense in effect. What he has seen and what's past at this point by verse 19 of chapter 1 is the vision of Christ. And every little label, every detail in that vision is used then as an identity somewhere later in the book. And some of the identities are very obvious, some are very subtle. Then he says, write the things which are, that actually exist now. And that's obviously the seven churches. This will be chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters penned by Jesus Christ to seven churches. When we count epistles, we often say there's 21 epistles. 14 ascribed to John and seven others. And uh, no, there's actually another seven that often get overlooked. And that's the, the ones by Jesus himself in chapters 2 and 3. Probably the richest material in the entire book. But at this point... We're going to see what shall be hereafter, what follows after the churches. And the word hereafter in the Greek is metatauta. And because I've taught this way for many years, there's a society in Utah called the Metatauta Society, which basically hosts a, a national speaker once a month. But the, the guy that organized that picked this up from these presentations, actually. But in any case... So when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, not surprisingly, the first words you're greeted with in the Greek is metatauta, after these things. It's translated after this in your English translation. So John continues saying, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be, what? Metatauta, after these things. Oh, and another point that comes up in verse 5 of chapter 4. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Jesus identified those seven lamps in chapter 1. What were they? The churches. Where are they in chapter 4? In heaven. That's significant. These subtleties are the kinds of things I want to tune you to. And don't, again, I want you to remind you, put Acts 17.11 at the top of your notepad. Acts 17.11 is where Luke tells you, don't believe anything Chuck Mister tells you. Receive, it, receive with openness of mind, but search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. 
So we're entering, in chapter 4, we're actually entering the throne room of the universe. We actually have a vision of the throne of God in, in, uh, in the first couple of, uh, second and third verses. And by the way, the throne of God, you see that in Isaiah 6. You'll see it in Ezekiel 1 and 10. These are major passages that you can read and compare, and uh, you'll see the things that are consistent. you also notice some subtle things that are different, and in those there's great lessons. But we also find ourselves confronted here in chapter 4 with 24 elders. 24 elders. We'll discover as we get into the chapter 5 that they will identify themselves as kings and priests, and I'm going to suggest to you that they represent the redeemed. And that may sound like a strange representation. Some people say, well, gee, there's 24 elders, 12 apostles, and 12 patriarchs. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think the only place 24 appears in the Bible is when David organizes the priesthood. The Levitical priests were organized into 24 what's translated courses. And each course officiated the temple for one week. And on Shabbat, they shifted to the next one. And they cycled that way. And uh, it's sort of like a watch bill in the Navy, in a sense. Except if you were a priest, you were, you were the course of so-and-so. There's 24 of those. The course that you were in is the one you always served with throughout the year. You'd serve every 24 weeks, in effect. Once every 24 weeks, in, that, in a formal sense. And certain holidays had them all. But in any case, we also find in Revelation 4 the seven lamps burning. And I'm going to suggest to you they are the same lamps that Jesus identified in chapter 1 as the churches. What's interesting is we also encounter in the description of the throne room of the universe a sea of glass that the elders are standing on. And I think this is kind of interesting because the whole throne room of the universe is modeled by the tabernacle in many ways, and I won't go through all that here, but it's interesting the correlative part of that in the tabernacle was the molten sea, this huge laver that they bathed in. Molten sea is a clumsy translation of brass wash basin, large it was... You know, it was, it was uh, five cubits deep, seven and a half feet deep. So it was deep that they actually could uh, immerse and, and, and they have their ritual uh, washing there. And so it's interesting, in the tabernacle, it represented the Word of God. Now you're clean by the washing of the Word. Ephesians uses that expression. But here the elders are standing on it. They're standing on the Word of God. Right here... You and I, we wash in it. There, we'll stand on it. And you say, Chuck, that's a pun. Yes, it is. It's a figure of speech, and it's interesting, the consistency. But in any case, whenever we see the throne of God, we always seem to encounter these four living creatures. Some unfortunate translations label that beasts, and that caused them to get confused with chapter uh, 13 of Revelation. It's a different Greek word. In the Zoa, it's, it's the, it, they're living creatures. These are the cherubim. They're probably similar to or maybe the same as the creatures in Isaiah 6, which he calls seraphim. But they are characterized by a number of things. They have wings and so on, but they have four faces. The lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle. And we felt that was very significant, both in terms of the camp of Israel and its four, the four camps that make up the three, you know, three tribes each, 
uh, we looked at Numbers 2, and then also they're idiomatic of the four Gospels, interestingly enough. But the 24 elders, I believe, are foreshadowed in the sense by David's 24 courses. In 1 Chronicles 24, you can check that out. It shocks many Bible students to discover there are other priesthoods besides the Levitical priesthood that is so prominent, of course, in the Torah. In the book of Leviticus and all through the, the history of Israel, the priesthood was separate from the ruling line. The ruling tribe was Judah, the priesthood was Levi, and they were not to cross. It's interesting, though, if you study your Bible carefully, the most prominent non-Levitical priest is Melchizedek. He shows up, incidentally, in Genesis 14, and he would disappear into oblivion if it wasn't for Psalm 110 and about three chapters of the book of Hebrews, where they emphasize that Jesus Christ is a priest and a king after the order of, or in the fashion of, in a sense, of Melchizedek, who is both a king and a priest. What many people don't notice is that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest of Midian. He wasn't a Levitical priest, but he was a priest. And uh, Jacob also gives tithes in Genesis 28. To whom? It's long before, long before uh, any of these. And it could be related to Melchizedek. It might be something else. And those are perceptions, so be aware of that. But the main point is, there are only three people in the Scripture that are king and a priest. Melchizedek, and the, Hebrews five, the writer to Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 hammers away that Jesus is unique in that he's a king and a priest, non-Levitical. Non and there's a third category, that is, and that's us. The 24 elders are kings and priests, as we'll see. When you get to chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says, they, sang, they sung a new song that the elders are singing, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now what's interesting, I'll just summarize it now, but you'll follow as we go. The tribulation doesn't start until the Lamb starts opening the seals of the book. He doesn't receive the book to open it, until after the 24 elders have put their crowns on the glassy sea. The main point is, the elders are up there worshiping Christ before the tribulation starts. Very interesting, and it's consistent with a number of other passages, obviously. Notice how often it's us when we. Something I should point out to you, that uh, we know that the elders are not angels, because of chapter 7 and verse 11, it makes it clear they're distinct from angels. They identify themselves here by saying, Thou hast redeemed us, they're saying. Thou hast made us, and we shall reign on the earth. These are, this is the expectation of the elders. There are some that say, gee, there's some manuscript, you'll hear some Bible footnotes will say, but there's some manuscripts makes that third party, that, you know, thou hast redeemed them, and so forth. That's misleading. Only one manuscript out of 24 renders it that way. Clearly, the abundance of the scriptural evidence is exactly the way it's been translated, and that's why it's been translated that way in our Bible. But we get to chapter 5, we have this pivotal event, an event that you really won't understand if you haven't studied the book of Ruth, to understand what a kinsman redeemer is. 
But uh, let's jump in. John says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. When it's written on the backside, that wasn't normally done, but it was done with title deeds. Because on the backside was written the requirements it took to open it. If you were going to redeem it, the requirements to redeem it were spelled out on the outside. And if you were qualified, then you could open it and claim it. So this is a scroll written within and on the backside, and it was sealed with seven seals. Not one seal, seven of them. So you break one and you can unroll it part way. You break another one, you can roll it. It's, it's sequential in that sense. Remember, it's, a, it's not like a book we think of. It was a, not a codex. What we, call a, what we call a book would be formally called a codex. They were starting to emerge in the first century. But this is in, a, in the Old Testament idiom, in a sense. And uh, it's a scroll, a, a, as, as you would visualize it. John continues, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals thereof? And no man, notice that, no man. We're talking about a man here. Had to be a kinsman of Adam. Adam forfeited it. If you're going to redeem it, you have to be a kinsman. No man in heaven or in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look upon it. You and I might not fully understand this, but John did. Because in verse 4, John says, I sobbed convulsively. He really he didn't sniffle. He really he wept much, is the way it's translated typically. Because no man was found worthy to read the scroll, neither look thereon. This is a huge tragedy. This is a cosmic tragedy if it was left undone. At this point, though, it's a huge cloud on the proceedings. But fortunately, one of the elders said unto me, John says, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. I want you to notice one of his qualifications to do that wasn't just that he was God and he was perfect. He also was man. Part of his mission was to become man to be qualified to redeem that which man had forfeited. John continues, and, and I beheld, and lo, in other words, I visualized the elder telling him he's going to be, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has is, 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 is prevailed. And as John turns, he doesn't see a lion. These are idioms of title. These aren't visual. You know, it's not a, a lion with mane. It's a, a title of Christ. But as he turns... As I, as I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood the Lamb as it had been slain. And this isn't a four-footed Lamb, as you sometimes see artists rendering it. This is a title of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist introduced him publicly when he first introduced him. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's the way John the Baptist introduced his first appearance publicly. Stood the lamb as, not a lamb, by the way, the lamb, as it has been slain, having seven hordes and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. It's interesting to me to see where the lamb is. He is in the midst of the elders. That's precious. That's precious. The lion of the tribe of Judah, also the lamb as it had been slain. 
And I saw the Lamb opened. One of this, now we're gonna, now this is going to start a sequence of seven seals. This, the book's got seven seals. We're going to open them one by one. John says, I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And one of the four beasts, that one of these four cherubim, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. You know, it's interesting how many expositors will publish a book, and because he's riding a white horse, they think he's a good guy. And they try to identify him with Jesus Christ. And if this is Jesus Christ, we got a problem. Because he's in bad company. The other horsemen are pretty grim, as you'll see. It's interesting that he is a poser. He is a phony he is the false Christ. And it's, he's, he does such a good job of it, he misleads many commentators. He, he that sat on him had a bow. The word bow in uh, Tekon, in the Greek, is uh, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, God gave Noah a bow, a rainbow in that case. It was a token of a covenant. And I believe the word bow here is also a token of a covenant. It's the covenant that defines the 70th week of Daniel. But let's go on. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And uh, if that's all we knew, it'd be ambiguous, but let's go see what happens next. So we have the first seal, a white horseman going forth to conquer. We're going to have four. The first four seals are the famed four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first one's riding a white horse. When he'd opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And so we have the red horsemen, which represent wars. So conquering and going forth wars. These are turbulent times, obviously, going forth here. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, uh, lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The term, the, the denarius here that's translated is, was a day's wage. Luxuries are out of the question. This seems to be, in the minds of most analysts, an idiomatic way of describing inflation and famine. It may shock you to discover that most famines in the history of the world are, there, are due to political maneuvering, not a shortage of resources. That's a very cynical, disturbing discovery, but there are scholars that will support that. So we have conquest, wars, famine, and when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. The word pale is, the word is in the Greek is actually chloros. It's a gr pale green. Behold, a chloros horse. And his name that sat on him was death. And hell, or Hades, followed with him. 
Let me comment quickly here. I think most of you should be recognized that in the Hebrew it's called Sheol. In the Greek it's called Hades. It's not hell as we think of hell. It's the, it's the, it's the, the domain of the departed souls. Not the, it's not the grave. The grave's the body. Graves can be owned by people, have a name on it. No, no one owns Sheol or Hades. And Hades has two compartments. The good guys and the bad guys. That's all out of Luke 16. You can study it. When you see hell, often in the English Bible, it's a translation of either the Sheol of the Hebrew in the Old Testament or the Hades of the Greek. And Hades will be cast into hell at the end of the book of Revelation. Hades and Sheol are temporary reservoirs. The idioms are geocentric. Gehenna, or the thing that we think of as hell, is just the opposite. It's in the outer darkness. Anyway, death and Hades followed with them, and power was given unto them, them, see it's plural, it's all four of these characters, over a fourth part of the earth, a fourth part of the earth, to kill with a sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And the word beast there, by the way, don't jump to the conclusion you're talking about four-footed mammals. Those beasts might be microscopic. This could include, in its overview, pestilence, disease of different kinds. So these four, white, red, black, and green, are the fabled four horsemen. In literature, th these four horses, when they're riding, are idiomatic of wars and, and dark times. Uh, there have been many novels and, and fiction items that lean on the four horsemen of the apocalypse as idiomatic of just trouble, turbulence, death, conquering, going forth, wars, famine, death, and so forth as a group. To try to identify the white horseman as Christ will just call, give you confusion trying to make sense of the rest of it. Let's move on. When he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar... The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. That's interesting, because these martyrs must have been resurrected to wear robes. And it was said unto them, that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The martyrs is the, the fifth seal. And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island was, were moved out of their places. It's fascinating to me that there are scholars that try to argue the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. I don't think so. Not so you'd notice and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the what? The wrath of the Lamb. 
I want you to notice that this trouble is more than just persecution. It is the wrath, not of Satan. There are those that paint that picture in their books that they write. No. The wrath is whose? Jesus. The wrath of the Lamb. I want you to notice this occurs all through the book, but it's showing up here in chapter 6 at the front end of all these things. It isn't something left to the very end. Follow me? And who shall be able to stand? Now those of you who are paying attention when we went through Joshua, remember that's what did the enemies of Joshua do? They tried to hid in the, hide in the caves, rocks fall on us and so forth. There's a, there's a parallel. The book of Joshua and the book of Revelation have the same outline. It's very worth your comparative study. So we have these cosmic changes I'll, I'll just summarize it with. Now then, I want you to know something else. This is a pattern in the book. When there's seven things, you'll notice there'll be six things and then a break. A parenthesis. As the subject seems to change, they talk about something else for a while, and then they give you the, the seventh one. It's always six, a break, and the seventh. And in this case, we have, after chapter six, the trumpets uh, that are going to follow, they don't start until chapter eight. Chapter seven is sort of like an insert, or like catching your breath. These things are building up, and it's as if it's almost as if the the screen director gives you a, a chance to catch your breath and talk about something else for a moment. So what comes in here is that in ch chapter seven is the ceiling of the hundred and forty-four thousand. What is listed there are the twelve tribes, and uh, twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes make up this peculiar special number of one hundred and forty-four thousand. And I think it's 144,000, because that's what it says. And as if to emphasize that, the Holy Spirit says there's 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from He goes through the, 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 the tribes. So when somebody rings your doorbell and claims they're one of the 144,000, ask them what tribe he's from. There are, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not to disparage uh, some of these other cults and things, but there's a real fixation by some on the hundred, being one of the 144,000. The 144,000 are clearly Jewish, and they're sealed after the rapture. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 